0: The placement of one comma can make all the difference. The placement of a comma can change everything. Umberto I ruled over a unified Italy from 1844 through 1900 and is known for the sly gesture of moving a comma and in doing so, changing a life. A notorious criminal's appeal for pardon came on his desk And the Minister of Justice had added a shorthand note to the request, reading, Grace, impossible, comma, to be left in prison. Umberto read the appeal with great interest, reached for his pen, and moved the comma by one word, so that the note now read, Grace, comma, impossible to be left in prison. God doesn't deal with me as my sins call for. God doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. But God treats us, dare I say, unfairly, and I put this in quotation marks, unfairly forgiving all our sins and he moves the comma but not in a sudden urge of royal caprice that may be true for the rulers of this world rather as God who is just and the justifier of the ungodly so he changes our status from convicted sinners to children of grace, pardoned and adopted into his royal family. But we are forgetful, aren't we? We can act as though we do not know him. A day comes when God shows up and moves a comma again. And this time a comma in our own twisted narrative to reset our account of life and its true meaning. I know that you've had these moments where God moved a comma in your perception, in your way of seeing things, and um, quite frankly, when you think of repentance as an ongoing aspect of the Christian life, there are many commas that need to be moved in my life and in your life as well. And that goes right down to the motives that drive us, the motives that make us do what we do and account for how we act. But when the comma moves, it always involves the same. That's one look at him, a fresh look at him who is your God. And as Psalm 73 would teach us, Your friend. God, your friend. One look changes everything. Now, Asaph, the poet of this wisdom Psalm 73, had an eye-opening experience of this kind in which the comma of his perception moved. It occurred when he entered God's house He saw his face, and one look at God changed everything. His tale is told easily with just a few simple strokes. The first half of this psalm rehearses days in which he was reduced to the level of a beast. As the salient, verse 22 emphasizes brutish, And ignorant, I was like a beast with you. The beastly condition that he describes was a fallout of naked envy, envy of thriving, prosperous people who get away with their malicious schemes and even garner the praise of their peers. Says Asaph, They're not in trouble like other folks are. They don't know pain. They are always at ease. Their life is one big success story. And fosters nothing but scoffing on the one hand, scoffing of the underprivileged or less privileged and boasting in their own invincibility. Asaph compares himself with the boastful and becomes as brute as they are. So here you see him then in the first half of the psalm harboring jealousy. And the flip side of jealousy is always self-pity And just below the surface of self-pity, you will always find bitterness. And just below bitterness, there hide anger and some form of despair. They always do come together. And as Jesus said to his disciples, anticipating the sentiment or the feeling, days are coming in which you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And so in 13 through 15, you can see Asaph's most acidic complaint. And if I put it in my own words, it would be something like, um, or what's the use of serving God? What's the benefit of trying to live a Godward life? Well, that sounds like a disowning of the faith, doesn't it? Or as verse 15 puts it, a betrayal of the generation of God's children. And so at this point, halfway through the psalm, Asaph has bottomed out. He's reached the lowest point. He can't talk to God As a matter of fact, he doesn't talk to God. The channel of communication has shut down. He's only looking at people, looking at himself, looking at the world. But he doesn't look at God, and he doesn't speak to God as a result. And so, he has no vocabulary. He has no language. And he resembles a beast or a monster. Driven. And at the same time, tortured by unbridled, raging instincts. You know how it is when we are overwhelmed by self destructive desires or sentiments or feelings. Just think of jealousy. This is no stranger to us. Think of self pity. Who among us has never felt self pity? Or have you ever been bitter? Surely you have. Angry. Have you ever experienced what it means to be overwhelmed with such sentiments and when that happens, you become less than what God meant you to be, what you are, as a matter of fact. And uh, Paul uses a different metaphor, appealing to the Exodus motif, when he speaks of this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Under very different circumstances, yes, but the same concept, being less than what you are. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not be entangled again under a yoke of bondage. You are free people. Do not become slaves. You are children of God. Don't act like beasts or monsters. All right, but light breaks in Asaph's dark world. In verse 17, he ventures into the temple. And there, God recalibrates his heart. And... He moves a comma and everything changes. If he envied the ruthless, he now sees their imminent ruin. This is verses 18 and 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. How they are destroyed in an instant! Now these exclamations are expressive of an imbe- indelible, unforgettable aha moment. So I ask, and I believe that some of you entertain the same question: or well, what did Asaph see in the sanctum to come to this, to arrive at this conclusion? Or rather, what did God show him? To capsize his view of people that he has declared untouchable and even envied. Now, you could make this very simple and say, yeah, well, he saw God. True, everything about the temple was revelatory of the person of God. But can we be more specific? And I think we can. For there was one chronic, constant, Feature of all the temple business that you could not ignore. It was in your face. You wouldn't have to wait long to see it if you went there. It was a continual slaughtering. It was blood, blood all over, blood in the morning, blood in the evening, and more blood in between. If I may say so, and you will forgive me for saying this, it was almost like a slaughterhouse, and priests, world class butchers, for sheer practice. And all of this on account of untold reminders, all those sacrifices, untold reminders that God is holy, 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 and that God demands absolute. Justice. That the good news of the gospel is founded on blood. That the only thing that kept Israel in the covenant with God was blood. And ultimately, blood. Prophetic of a precious blood that God would give to reconcile us to him once for all. That's what Asaph saw when he went to the sanctum. It was a reminder that God will reckon with every man. And so rivers of blood spoke of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who on his way to Golgotha, with a cross on his back, women weeping over him turned to them and said, don't cry for me. Rather weep for yourselves and weep for your children, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? What he said was that if if, if the father made his son the object of his wrath, he made him sin who knew no sin. If he made him the object of his wrath, to be able to deal justly, no corners cut, with our sins. What will happen to those who spurn him? Or what about those who don't know him or don't want to know him? The Apostle Paul says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? This is Paul's theologic. He's saying if this is true, if God gave up his son for us, well then, this must follow. There's no question it will follow. But the same theologic also implies that God who did give up his own son to be able to forgive sin and never remember our sin, how will God not judge the world in righteousness? Again, that's what Asaph saw. Of course, he didn't see all that we see, but it is packed into the words, how they are destroyed in an instant. And in one sweep, self-pity turned into the pity of the arrogant and the ruthless. A comma had been moved in his narrative. But from here, our psalm rises to its grand finale. Verses 23 through 28, this is the trademark language for which 73 is known, and this is the fulcrum of the psalm, no question. And um, this is also the flip side of Asaph's aha moment in God's presence. Not only does he see the world and the people of the world and a new light, but himself too having returned from a bestial existence to his true self and identity, we would say, in Christ. Asaph revels in what he has and what he didn't see he has, always had. He revels in his restored relationship with God and in terms Nothing short of intimate friendship with God. Now, you may be surprised to hear this, but I thought about this, and I think that you will take my word for it. I thought about what is the one word, the one concept that characterizes 23 through 28 and is able to address most, if not all, of the aspects that are treated here. And you could say covenant, and I will speak of covenant, but covenant is a relationship. And because of the intensely personal nature of the words in 23 through 28, I cannot think of a better concept than friendship, and that is also a biblical concept. So um, he used to be a monster, a beast with God. But the renewal of God's steadfast love and relationship, in fact, friendship, restores Asaph's heart and transforms him. And when I read Psalm 73, I couldn't help but think of the Frankenstein monster movies, The first original ones were made by Semley, directed by Semley, the first in 1931 and then the second one in 1935. And you may wonder where is this going? But bear with me for just long enough. These two movies are case studies of the human condition. They really are. And... um, the monster, Frankenstein's monster, is you and it is I. You ought to see yourself. I see myself in the monster, stitched together from all these different parts, man playing God, man making man in his own image, but only able to create a beast. But there are two scenes, one in each of these first two features, where the beast becomes human and uh, is transformed, is humanized. And the first of these scenes is in the first movie where the monster chances upon a tiny little girl at a lake. And uh, the girl gives him, I think it's a daisy, it's a flower, And this is the first nice thing that anyone has ever done to the monster. And you can see his heart melting away. And for the first time, there is a smile on his face that you have never seen before. And then the girl says to the monster, taking more flowers and throwing them on the surface of the water, she says, these are our boats which is an invitation to play with her and an invitation to friendship, to share with her. And the monster loves the little girl. He truly does. And because he is so awkward and because he is a monster, he takes the little girl and throws her into the lake. And the girl drowns. The lesson? We tend to destroy what we love most. Because we don't know what love is or what, or how we ought to love. We don't know. And then there's a second scene and the second feature from 1935. And this one is even more overtly about friendship. Here the monster chances upon a hut in a forest. Inside, an old blind man playing the violin. And the monster loves the sweet sound of the violin, so he enters and the blind man senses his presence. But he also knows that that person can't talk. He has no language. Because all that the monster can do is. Oh, oh. And so the blind man says, Ah, oh, you too have an affliction. We can be friends. And what happens in the unfolding of this scene inside the hut is that through the friendship of the old man, the monster becomes human and he learns language, he learns to speak and even though, again, it's very awkward, all he can say are things like food, good, Mm. friend, good. He becomes human, friendship, draws him out of himself into a new existence. And then, of course, villagers come and they see the beast in the hut and they attack the beast. And in the course of that fight, the hut is burned to the ground. And then the last thing you see in that scene of the monster is the monster heading into the forest, crying, Friend! Friend! This is what happens when Jesus befriends you. You become what you are meant to be. And without him, you cannot. It is through the friendship of the Lord that you become what you are meant to be. And the idea is captured in Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. Friendship translates Hebrew sort. And it means... secret, you could translate the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, or secret counsel, but in any case, it depicts an intimate bond between two persons or parties and therefore friendship. And friendship is linked with God sharing with you his covenant, showing you his covenant, as a matter of fact, uh, friendship and covenant in Psalm 25:14 are roughly synonymous, which is a very interesting thought. God making known to you his covenant is how he befriends you and lifts you out of your misery, your beastly existence. Therefore, Exodus 33:11 has God speaking to Moses, making known his covenant to him gradually, step by step, quote, face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Job 29, 4, reminisces in past days when the friendship of God was with the patriarch, although now he is rolling in pain. And James two twenty three, reflecting on Abram's faith in God's covenant promise, says, Abram believed God and he was called a friend of God. Now, there are four aspects of this friendship of God that show in our text, and I'll run them by you. And so close for today. First, you will guide me with your counsel. Well, that's what a friend does. You would be no good friend to anyone if you never counseled, warned, or instructed your friend. And you would be no good friend if you would not be able to listen to the counsel of your friend either. And so this is what a friend does. Your friend knows you in and out. A true friend knows you better than anyone else. And he knows your situation. And his counsel, therefore, is meant only for your good. As Psalm 25, 14 says, the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear them, and he will show them his covenant. That is God guiding you, teaching you how to live and how to prosper in this bewildering and strange world, dangerous too. Jesus told his disciples, therefore, no longer do I call you servants. Well, a servant does not know what his master does, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friendship entails frankness, open dialogue. And because Jesus shares all that is on his heart with you for your good, because he guides you with his counsel, you too speak to him. It has to be mutual among friends and you be open and be honest and frank with him. And if there is one thing that you learn from the Psalms, the hymn book of the Bible, but also the prayer book of the Bible, it is to be honest and frank with God. Not so that you can share information that he doesn't already have, but to open up your heart so that he can do something with you, change you. And through the Psalter, the prayer book of the Bible, you, like Frankenstein's monster, you learn language. You learn the language of prayer, the language of God's people, as you are meant to commune with your God. Hmm? That makes sense, doesn't it? Second, Asaph also refers to God as rock in 26, and this too bespeaks friendship. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Now, the rock is an Old Testament savior metaphor So, for example, in Psalm 18, 2, and in many other places, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my savior, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, translates the Old Testament rock metaphor in terms of Jesus Christ calling him the spiritual rock. But, brothers and sisters, this too is... An aspect of friendship, isn't it? Think of it. A friend is a rock. A friend remains when all others are gone. A friend is there to save you, or at least give it a go. He's with you in your trouble when others leave you alone. And isn't this what we say when you thank your friend, I, was, I am so thankful that you were with me in this difficult time, we say what? Isn't that what friends are there for? Well, that's what friends are there for, is what we say. And therefore, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is your friend. Jesus laid down his life for you, and so is the rock. He is the rock of the covenant, the rock of your relationship with God, and he secures you with his steadfast love. And he became like us in all respects except for sin. His blood has sealed our friendship with God. But he became like us. He became utterly vulnerable in the process and did what many would consider foolish. When you go and pick a fight, you don't let down your guard. You keep up your guard. He let down his guard completely and he spread his hands on the cross and took one blow after another until you were reconciled with your heavenly father. Do you see your friend in Jesus and the kind of friend that you need And like Frankenstein's monster, by his friendship you learn to become truly human because friends shape each other as surely as iron sharpens iron. Jesus has come all the way down to us, to our level. He's become like us. He's become one of us He has added humanity to his divine nature so that we could be together, that we could be one friends. And now you, since he has done his part, you become like him. If he is your friend, you will. And the last two aspects that I want to share with you today, they speak of this transformation in particular. Verse 25 highlights the transformation of ACE's desires through the friendship of God or of Christ, if you will. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire but you. Now, this is a telltale sign of Christ changing Asaph into his image because this desire of God above all else doesn't come natural to us. It's his work, it's his doing, it's his presence that does this to us. And it's also evidence of the comma of his narrative having moved. Because it involves the simple realization that all that matters in life has been settled with God as your friend by your side. That you can do all things through him who strengthens you. In whom you have all you need to cope. And God has given you a vision vision to share with him. Because when you speak of human desire, you always speak of a vision. When you desire something, you're looking at something. Something is before you in your mind. And the father sees the son always. And the father loves what he sees in the son. And the father wants the world to see what he sees in the son. And he says... This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Look to him, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. And now you do see, by faith, you see what he sees in his Son. And you love what you see in him, and you say, yes. He is excellent. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. I love what I see in him. And conversely, Jesus sees the Father. And he loves the Father. And as John 1.18 says, he came to earth so that he would make known the Father to us. And by the Holy Spirit, he now shows you the Father so that you can now stand side by side and admire his father and your father together. It's what makes friends, isn't it? Having a common desire, having a common vision, a shared vision, having a common interest. Based on the idea of friendship in Greek philosophy, C.S. Lewis distinguished between eros and philos, eros, physical attraction, has two persons stare at each other and desire what they see. But philos is different. In philos, two persons stand side by side and gaze at the same object and share their praise of what they see You too see what I see. We have this in common. It's what makes friendship. It defines friendship. Friendship with God means you desire what he desires. You see what he sees. And by implication, you hate what he hates. That too. You share his vision. And as verse 28 then says, you tell of him, and you speak of all his works, because whatever you see and whatever solicits your praise is also the thing that you will hear pouring from your lips. And last but not least, Isaac also knows that friendship of God implies obedience, Says 28, it is good for me. This is how the Hebrew reads it is good for me to be near God. Now, being near God is the functional equivalent of Jesus saying to us, Abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Being near to God entails obedience. You can't say, Hey, I'm going to go to worship today. If you disobey him, you can't worship him. If you walk and live in sin, if you breathe sin, you can't be near him. Sin separates people from God, and that is true of all people. Of course, I am not saying that you must be perfect to worship God. Please do not misunderstand me. I think you know what I mean. Nevertheless, being near entails obedience all the more because verse 27 renders the polar opposite. Do you see what it says? Those who are far from you shall perish. You will make an end of all those who are unfaithful, say, disobedient to you. Uh, Perhaps you didn't see this coming closing with obedience as an aspect of friendship. But how could it not be so? The text itself points to it, by a simple comparison of 27 and 28, as I just have shown you, but if you think of friends, Don't friends do what is right and good by each other? Don't friends honor each other? Well, how would it look like if you honor God as your friend? How would that look like? More so, we often hear people say, yeah, well, if you love someone, then let them be. You let them be what they want to be. You let them do what they want to do. And we do the same thing with friendship. We say, well, if you have a friend, you let your friend be. You acknowledge and accept your friend, warts and all. And while this can be very misleading, it's also true. Who among us has a friend who is perfect? Who among us has a friend and, as I said, if you have a friend, you know that person very well. Who among us has a friend and doesn't see something that is not good in that person? But you love him anyway, you love her anyway, because he or she is your friend. Yeah, but if God is your friend, are you not letting him be God On his own terms. He is perfect. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of creation. Why of course you obey him. How else can anyone. Be his friend. How else can anyone do right. By him. Unless we obey him. Therefore, Jesus himself said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And as we said, this begins with new desires. As he works, goes to work in you, as he guides you with his counsel as his presence makes itself felt and works itself into your being, as you become like him, you love what he loves, not perfectly, and you hate what he hates, not perfectly. So, Jesus is your friend, my friend, If you believe in the gospel, then he is your friend. I have every right to say this. You are entitled to say and to believe this. This is part of the scriptural message. So keep his word. If you are his friend, keep his word. Do it for his sake, for his name's sake, because as his friend, you honor him and you do right by him. And his friendship remains. I think this is where we want to close today. His friendship remains even when we are unfaithful. As um, Asaph says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. This has the nuance of an unbreakable bond. After all, Jesus laid down his life for you and shall all of this now go to waste. Impossible. He does not start a work and then fail to finish. Says 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Afterward shares the same root as the word end in verse 17, where you read, Then I discerned their end. The story of the unbeliever will end in hell. Under eternal judgment, your story will end in glory, the place that Jesus has prepared for you to be with you forever. And today and tomorrow and for the end of your days, he may move a few commas. He will move commas as many as it takes to get you there, to make you like him, to see what he sees, to love what he loves. He may move a comma in your story, and he will, because as a friend who sticks closer than a brother, he won't abandon you to yourself and you, do not want to be without Jesus, do you? But as Asaph knows, you hold my right hand. So he does. And you, therefore, hold on to his. Father, we thank you for what a friend we have in Jesus. How is it that you, our Father, also offer us the friendship, and the covenant of grace in which you become like one of us in your Son. You have befriended us by showing us the covenant, making yourself known to us, and you have begun a good work in us, and we are certain that you will finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. We pray here this morning, Father, that... The thought of you being so close, of not being ashamed to be called our God and indeed our friend, would greatly encourage us, move us to repentance, out of self and into Christ, out of this world and into your presence, so that we, like Asaph, may have many aha moments, many commas moved and are transformed into his likeness and a work that you will surely do. We praise you for it. Thank you. Amen.